Welcome to Climate Now, the podcast that explores and explains the ideas, technologies, and solutions that we'll need to address the climate crisis. I'm James Lawler, and to sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Tuesday morning with the link to the latest podcast episode, as well as background information and relevant links if you'd like to dig deeper, you can go to climatenow.com and put in your email subscribe. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at contact at climatenow.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners, your feedback, ideas, etc. So don't be shy. So this week, we are releasing a shorter episode. It'll just be the news segment, This Week in Climate News. And we'll be back next week with an episode on turning woody bio-waste into energy with core infrastructure. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to This Week in Climate News. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Julio Friedman and Darren Howe. Welcome, guys. Good to see you again. Always a treat. Hey, everyone. So, Julio, you made a prediction two weeks ago that the fires would continue to be a story, and you were proved correct, Precious. unfortunately. Right. Well, this comes in part from living in California. We have had years in which the fires have dominated our air quality, impeded tourism, caused health concerns, and now we're seeing that this is not just limited to California. The fires in Quebec and other parts of uh, southeastern Canada are now bringing that same bonus, joy, to the rest of the eastern seaboard. This is not a laughing matter. 500 AQI is really bad. It's bad for your health. It's bad for visibility. The risk to high-risk populations, like the elderly or the very young, is acute. This is a preview of coming attractions. We are going to continue to see more of this not just in the U.S., not just in Canada, not just on the West Coast, not just on the East Coast. We are going to see this for a long time all over the world in many sectors. And the challenge is there's kind of nothing for it. All it is is escalating cost and damage. Right. I I got interested in the development of modern sewers in Europe not too long ago because it just struck me as an interesting analogy where, you know, for over 100 years as the city of London increasingly industrialized you know, through the 1700s, 1800s, the stench every year from the River Thames where human refuse, industrial effluent, and all kinds of other things was channeled became increasingly unbearable until one year, which was 1858, when literally the stench was so great that Parliament could not sit. They could no longer do business in London. And it was only at that point, after sort of years and years of kicking the can down the road, that they agreed to the significant cost of building a modernized sewer system. After doing that, you know, there was a a dramatic increase in life expectancy. And so society basically, you know, was living with these huge costs in the form of lost years. But once that cost had been actually spent, you you unlock kind of you know, massive value. And, and I, and I, it's just struck me that that analogy is, is so similar to what we face with climate. Well, I like the fact that you're always pulling from historical precedents mm-hmm. there, James. Draws a, draws a neat thread. Yeah, all this. I, I think it's unlikely to be a robust analogy, even though I've used it many times myself. London spent 2% of its GDP. That is a big investment to clean up the Thames and, and put in modern sewer systems. However, the Benefits were immediate. The harms before that were obvious and immediate. That's the challenge. And in point of fact, if you spend a lot of money now on climate change, you don't see the benefits. 
So I think that the political calculus is quite different. That said, in the past, the number of bills mm-hmm. introduced associated with climate have been strongly correlated to temperatures in Washington, D.C. It is my hope that the terrible air quality will at least prompt some soul-searching and get people uh, serious about the task. Yeah. So moving to another story, we have had a couple of interesting articles this week on the accelerating sales of electric vehicles and sort of whether we are are on track or not yet on track to meet our electrification goals when it comes to passenger vehicles. I guess it's no surprise to people who have been in the industry, even though the adoption of electric vehicles has really started to hockey stick here. A, it's still relatively low, and B, the fact is it'll take time to replace the vehicles that are already on the road today. Uh, So what this article was saying is that shipments of ICE vehicles may have peaked about six years ago, but there are still 1.3 billion on the road. Uh, So because of the time it takes to turn over the fleet, especially given inflation and so on, the average age of a vehicle has just gotten longer and longer. It used to be, you know, 10 years, then went to 12. I believe now it's pushing 14 to 16. What that means is that some 30% of the fleet will still be burning uh, fuel by 2050. And heavy commercial vehicles are going to be even worse. Uh, They expect that only 32% of the fleet uh, will be decarbonized uh, by 2050. So it's just kind of a heads up that there's still a lot of work to be done. We have to clean up the grid, but we also have to figure out a way to decarbonize the existing uh, fleet that we have here. Yeah, uh, I would file this under this story in related news, water is wet. We have known (laughs) this for a very, very long time. Yeah. The speed at which electric vehicles are coming forward is excellent, but that is not the same thing as decarbonizing the fleet. And we're seeing those numbers again, and we will see them again again. There are some really good bright points in this, in particular in India. Two- and three-wheel vehicle electrification really is leading to displacement of two-stroke engines and, and these sorts of things. Like There's some, some bright points, but you can't be cavaliering about this. It comes back to the idea that none of this is easy. None of this is cheap. Just adding electric vehicles does not even hit the EV target, much less all the other climate targets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to chime in there too. There was another interesting article, I believe from Bloomberg as well, saying, and the title was pretty provocative. It said, the wrong people are buying EVs. Now, of course, there's more to the story, but what they were basically pulling were some anecdotes where they said, well, well, and some data that said a lot of folks who are buying EVs already have another car, right? They're buying another EV or they already have an EV and they're buying their second one. But what that means is those EVs are not being driven that much. So they're not displacing that many gasoline miles. And at the same time, they may be pushing up the price of these EVs for other folks who may otherwise have changed. Um, now, of course, you know, the, this data continues to change. I, I read this article on Electrek saying that more traditionally conservative Republican areas are going to EVs just because it's a better technology and they like it. And, and that is the transition we kind of need to see. So, you know, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but we do have to think about these sorts of implications. So another obvious implication or obvious factor in electrifying the fleet is the charging infrastructure. And there was a big piece of news on that front. Darren, do you want to fill us oh my in gosh. on, yes, on the latest? Yes, I have so much to talk about. So you'll have to hold me back here. Uh, So obviously, several weeks ago, we talked about Tesla and Ford partnering on the North American charging standard. This is Tesla's charging standard. And we already discussed why that 
uh, platform is superior. It's slimmer and easier to handle for the cables, and the connector is smaller and more reliable with no moving parts. It can handle more current. It's you know compatible with 400 volt, 800 volt architectures, or you know thousand volt at this point. The news just yesterday, or for folks who are listening on the podcast, maybe a few days ago, is that GM also joined. Uh, well, Mary from GM also joined Elon on Twitter Spaces and announced that it too would adopt Tesla's North American charging standard or NAX connector. Uh, so this is was ever was everyone able to hear that Twitter? Sp- did that actually work this time on the Twitter Spaces? Yeah, I, I was listening. Yeah. Yeah. Got out there. Okay, good. Just one check. <laughs> Keep going. So this is huge. I mean, like when Ford came out, it was this shockwave to the industry, right? And this is yet, I guess this is an aftershock of it. So we are seeing, you know, people saying dominoes are falling, etc. cetera. Uh, really, I think a couple of key things to note here. Uh, it was very clearly stated that there would be no preferential treatment of Tesla owners versus Ford and GM owners. And I think that's pretty key to making sure that Ford and GM accepted something like this. One thing that I think is really refreshing is that these players have been willing to set aside some of their competitive concerns to do the right thing for the industry and for customers. Now, of course, there are financial benefits involved as well. I think Mary Barra went and said, you know, told Wall Street that, hey, we save $400 million by not having to build our own networks. Uh, so there are financial benefits, but it's it's just very inspiring to see that we can kind of wade through this muck of competing standards and get hopefully somewhere better for the consumer. I think a couple of uh, things that were interesting. So Char-In is the consortium that is uh, promoting the alternative standard, right? Uh, CCS1 and CCS2. Now in Europe, CCS2 is completely dominant. Um, It is actually a better design than CCS1. We got an inferior design here in America. And, and Tesla actually retrofitted all of the supercharger stations and vehicles to use CCS2. So I don't think that's going to change. Uh, but there was an article that Charn put out, a statement that basically said, hey, we should really stick with CCS. I think just a couple things to note here to take with some caveats. You know, One of their claims was there are more CCS charge points than NAX charge points. I think one thing to... And NAX is the Tesla That's standard. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's unclear whether this is true or not. It's kind of hard to find exact numbers because Tesla doesn't break it down in the US. But regardless of whether that is true or not, the question is how many of these are reliable, right? You may have them installed, but how many people actually can use them? And that's, that's, that's the metric that counts here. Uh, the second one is they said that global standards are important for global interoperability. I just want to call out, though, that CCS1 and CCS2 are not compatible, right? Like, one's for Europe, one's for the US. It's sort of like different outlets on your electrical grid. So that one needs to be a little careful about interpreting that. I think a fair point that they did bring up is that NAX is not technically a standard that is created by uh, some sort of consortium. And the fact is there is going to have to be a structure that emerges to make sure there is a pathway for future development. So basically, so far, it's all been Tesla defining how they want to do it with more automakers joining the fray. They're going to have to figure out some way to figure out how to implement new features. That being said, the performance and execution kind of speaks for itself with GM joining. It seems inevitable that you know the Tesla standard, NAX, will become the dominant standard in North America. The question is... How quickly will European and Japanese automakers follow? Mm-hmm. What do you think this will mean in terms of EV adoption and and people purchasing vehicles? Like, is there is there any thinking on on how it will will change this trajectory? Well, I have to say that 
this is a personal opinion, but if you're thinking of buying a non-Tesla EV, I think there's going to be quite a few people who are thinking, maybe I'll wait till after 2025 when the Tesla connector is going to be natively on those vehicles. I'm not a financial analyst, but uh, I wonder if there might not be some dampening of demand for GM and Ford vehicles in the interim. So despite, you know, th- there's risk involved in all players. The only thing I would add to Darren's exceptional comments is that I was just traveling in Europe and they still don't have plugs that match U.S. plugs. I don't think the standards are going to be <laughs> adopted globally. I think Europe's going to do what it does and Japan is going to do what it does. But I agree that we're going to see widespread adoption uh, across North America of this new standard. Mm-hmm. So this week, negotiations kicked off in Bonn uh, in preparation for COP28 and at issue here is the global stock take for sort of tracking how countries are doing with respect to their nationally determined commitments for CO2 reduction, among other things. And I wonder, Julio, if you could maybe provide some additional context. What is the global stock take and what are these negotiations about and what should we watch out for? Yeah, the global stock take is kind of what it sounds like. I like to describe it as weigh-in before a boxing match. Everybody has to get on the scale. And... Every nation has made certain kinds of commitments, and this is the point where they all have to get on the scale. And in doing so, this is the first global stock take. It was going to be earlier. It's been delayed because of COVID, but the first global stock take since the Paris Accord was agreed to, and this is a key aspect of the enforcement and compliance associated with this voluntary set of actions. The punchline here is it's not going to be pretty. Most nations are not reaching their goals, and they know it. And so bond, the global stock take is the first point in which everybody has to start sharing their data where they're at. And it's also the place where certain kinds of nomenclature, nationally determined contributions, pathways for compliance, like all this stuff starts getting really granular and nailed down. And that codification and clarification process is going to be vexing for everybody involved. I expect we're going to see a lot of stories that come out of Bonn and in anticipation of COP28 that basically say everybody's failing. I think that's a misrepresentation of the process. I think that's a misrepresentation of how much progress we've made. We've made a lot of progress. And the stock take actually is just the first point of checking. It's the point in which everybody says, well, how are we actually doing? So I see it as an opportunity to get better process. I see it as an opportunity to make stronger commitments, uh, to change your plan if you are falling behind and all these other sorts of things. But for a diplomat, this is going to be a tough week. Now, one question I've had about this, Julio, is countries who are participating in the global stock take, there's no sort of third-party audit or checking on... um, data or emissions data, or or is there? There's kind of no place to hide here. If you've made commitments around methane abatement, there's satellites that will see whether or not you're hitting your targets. If you said you're going to deploy a certain amount of renewables by a certain time, the International Energy Agency has the data. Like there's, there, there's not actually any cover. This is in fact a positive consequence of the need for a stock take and a positive consequence of the Paris Agreement in general. The fact that Now, financial institutions and banks, environmental organizations around the world, whether they are things like the EPA or the environmental groups, the fact that there's this broad set of data and monitoring out there, which is widely shared, means you just can't fudge it. It does, however, beg the question, what is 
being behind actually mean? So in the case of the United States, we are likely to be behind on our targets, but we just passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, the IRA. If we start building transmission lines, if we start implementing the EPA's new rules, we'll still be behind, but we will be on track to actually making our commitments. And being behind doesn't mean that you can't make your commitments. And this is part of what's going to come out of the ongoing caravansary and party that's going on at Bonn. Thanks, Leo. So we'll definitely be tracking this over the, the coming weeks as we get closer. I think we're about 20 weeks out or so from COP, and you will hear more stories on on, on progress. Uh, uh, I'm actually that, interested to see what will happen at the UN General Assembly meeting in September, which is the halfway point between here and COP28, and how the stock take will affect the way that nations and the UN as a whole think about their commitments. In the category of no one's really surprised, uh, the Swiss advertising regulators have ruled that FIFA, F-I-F-A, the organization that manages global soccer competitions, has found that Qatar's World Cup in 2022 was not, in fact, a net zero event. One of the questions is uh, what happens as a consequence of that. Will there be fines? Will there be sanctions? And so forth. But uh, there was broad concern that Qatar as a nation was not really committed to net zero goals. Now there's evidence that they really didn't make it. And so one of the questions is if they advertise that, and that was part of their bid package, what happens next? We're going to see these kinds of things continue to come up. Uh, Increasingly, we're seeing a business and people trying to decarbonize events, whether it's the Democratic Convention or the Los Angeles Olympics or, you know, people or rock concerts, people are getting into the decarbonization business, but you better bloody do the work. Otherwise, you are at risk as an institution. One of the frustrating aspects of that is that that actually can diminish ambition. If you're an early actor and you go out and try something, then you can get penalized. Well, that sort of dampens everyone's enthusiasm. Still, in this case, I think it's pretty clear cut. FIFA really uh, did not deliver on its promises of a carbon neutral World Cup. That was all for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us and tune in next week for our conversation with Steve Wirtel from Core Infrastructure. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org.